The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Specifically, today's story includes animal-on-animal violence and a disturbing incident involving recently deceased animals. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody. We've got an interesting story for you tonight from author M. Ennenbach. It's titled, I Saw It From the Upstairs Window. Texan Luke Harden has recently relocated to Ottawa, Illinois, to move into his deceased aunt's house. As he's acclimating to the new town, he sees something odd from his upstairs window one evening. The sky flashes purple, and he hears a strange, high-pitched ringing sound. Luke soon realizes that Ottawa is being maligned by an unknown presence, and that the events that are unfolding might actually have been… foretold? Before we jump into this one, I'd like to thank Drew Blood and Olivia Steele, both of whom will be providing guest voices in this story. Also, be sure to stick around for the end of this episode, as I've got an update on the super-secret big news I mentioned a little while back. You wouldn't want to be left in the dark, now would you? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, 
Visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author M. Ennenbach, I give you, I saw it from the upstairs window. I saw it that first time from the upstairs window. It is strange how moments become frozen in your mind, single frames become clear. That evening encapsulated the feeling, first time I saw it from the upstairs window. I don't know how to explain it, not in any way that'll make sense to you. I'm sorry, but I can tell you the truth about what happened. Not just the first time, no. If I could go back in time and change one event in my life, I would not have gone upstairs. I would not have been curious as to a flicker of motion. There is zero chance I would have looked out and seen what I saw. The chain of strange occurrences that followed would never have taken place. Things would go back to normal. I wonder sometimes, if I pray hard enough, will God hear me? Will he rewind the tape? No. God did not build us in its image. Instead, God made us the perfect prey. I'm getting ahead of myself, or behind. There isn't a lot of time. Events are escalating now. If you find this recording, it needs to be taken to the president or congress or someone. You'll understand why, maybe not what or how, but why will be crystal clear. I am not insane. My name is Luke Harden. I moved to this town a little over three months ago. I fear this is my last will and testament. No, I know it will be. But never give up hope, right? My grandmother was originally from here, from Ottawa, Illinois. We would visit for the holidays every other year. As a child, I quite enjoyed seeing snow on the ground for Christmas, having grown up in Dallas. That was a single-day rarity once a decade. The entire city shut down, panic at the grocery stores, everyone needed ten loaves of bread and all the toilet paper. In Ottawa, it was just another day. My father would wake me up early and we would go down the block shoveling steps and sidewalks for the elderly residents. Snowball fights and cousins that laughed the way I said, y'all. It was idyllic, a Rockwell painting in my mind. So, when my aunt passed away and no one else wanted the house, I jumped on it. I was tired of the heat and the traffic and happily traded millions of angry people for 20,000 somewhat friendlier folks. Sure, the amenities were different, but different can be good. It didn't hurt. I seem to remember there were a lot of cute girls there as well. I had grown tired of the beautiful but unapproachable Dallas crowd. A Midwestern girl with a sweet smile mile wide sounded perfect. I never got a chance to find out if that was true or not. The first time I saw it out the upstairs window was in late May. I'd already traded mid-90s temperatures for 60s and 70s. 
The old house didn't even have central air, just a furnace and old iron radiators and box fans for the windows. I hadn't unpacked everything, hardly anything really. The clothes in the dresser and closet were about the extent. My aunt's things, which were mostly my grandmother's things, were still everywhere. It was less unpacking than swapping places. I set the typewriter on the table and my recording equipment and computer in one of the smaller bedrooms upstairs. The house was old. It looked like a dollhouse, or straight off a plantation, maybe. When I was a kid, I swore it had a face. Four bedrooms in the large second floor and one in the lower where my wheelchair-bound grandmother had slept. It was going to be the game room with a snooker table and dartboard if I ever figured out how to get the hospital bed out and remove the overwhelming 70s vibe. There was a lot to be done, but I thought I had plenty of time. That evening, I would learn differently. I had a pizza from Sam's, recommended by the cute lady at the bank who was smitten by my draw. I didn't have the heart to tell her that mine was tame compared to the country boys in Wolf County or Winsboro. She said the first thing I needed was a large pizza from Sam's, then gave me her number and hinted at what the second thing could be. She was right about the first. I had a piece, then five or six more. They cut the pizza in rows, not slices, and I found the middle pieces were thick with cheese and the thin crust beneath was sauced perfectly in my mouth as I climbed the stairs. Two more, seven and eight, one in my hand, the other in my mouth, and my phone in the other as I hit send on a text to my friend Alvin back home. It was then that I heard something. It sounded, at first, like tinnitus after a loud concert, a high-pitched ringing, pervasive and sustained. I nearly dropped my phone as I flinched back from it. The sound, miserable as it was, only made me pause at the top of the stairs and squint my eyes when a brilliant flash of lavender made me look towards the window. I felt the slice of pizza in my mouth begin to droop as I clenched harder than I had meant from the sudden stab of pain and then shock at the vividness of the soft purple flash. If it had been yellow, red, green even, I doubt my curiosity would have been piqued. But that lilac blossom color kindled a memory of summer spent downstairs as the scent of the flowers filled the entire house and tugged me forward. There was something, a shape the color of the late evening sky shadow, black against the black of the night, sliding sinuously against the roof of a car parked on the street a couple houses down. I blinked, confused at what I was sure I wasn't really seeing. Rationally, I speculated it was just a wet spot, oil perhaps, while the streetlight through the branches and leaves performed an optical illusion of some sort. I looked up and saw clear skies, still amazed at the sheer number of stars I could see after so long in the light pollution at Dallas-Fort Worth, then back to the stain of darkness. A dull yellow light as the driver's side door opened off the car with a mercurial ebony pool grabbed my attention. I saw the pool react, and at first I thought it was from the springs shifting as the heavy-set man got painfully out. Then I realized whatever it was that was on the car, it was not rainwater nor oil. The inky pool began to draw itself up 
A cobra flare in its neck sped through my mind. Without time for a single thought, I slammed the hand holding the pizza against the window to alert him of the impending danger. Instead of a loud knock on the glass, a low slap and smash fell flaccid in the hallway, only for me. This may be the only reason I've lasted this long. The dark spot swept forward and over the man, showered him in what seemed to be a viscous, oily night, dropped down from space or separated from the void. I stared, smashed pizza pressed against the window as it slowly, I don't know, absorbed into, for lack of a better term, his skin. He fell bonelessly to the sidewalk and convulsed as I watched, horrified. I dropped the pizza and hit 911. Or tried. My finger slid across a greasy piece of pepperoni that had fallen during my frantic smashing. I looked around in a panic and then slid the phone across my basketball shorts. I paused. The man stopped shaking and then, to my surprise, stood up slowly. I don't know why, but I stepped back quickly. Something primal in me shouted when I saw his head turn towards me. Had I just seen what I thought I saw? Did I eat too much pizza? I had, on both accounts. One would affect me more immediately when I woke the next morning. The other would become my personal hell. Keeping in the shadows and sticking my phone in my pocket, I crept back to the window. The man was nowhere to be seen. All that remained was tomato sauce smeared on the window and my heart hammering in my ears. You would think I could have chalked it up to indigestion and being overly tired and stressed from the move. Both options seemed valid, and I clung to them tightly at first. In fact, I went on as if nothing happened after the first time I saw it from the upstairs window. I laughed about it as I scrubbed the window the next morning. The neighborhood was quiet, and I watched crimson and blue streaks in the trees and bushes below, the cardinals and jays out early and full of manic energy. I decided to go to the local bookstore and get a book on birds. As I happily scrubbed the stubborn grease and decided on the day's excursion, I froze as the heavy-set man came out of his house. He looked angry, and I couldn't tell if he was limping or just had an unwieldy gait. No matter, though, as he looked up and our eyes locked, the paper towel fell from my hand to the floor and my heart momentarily stopped. He smiled and waved up at me. Instinctively, I smiled, big and fake, and waved back. I bent over to grab the paper towel, and when I looked again, he was pulling away. I laughed at my own stupidity and finished cleaning the grease and sauce off the pane of glass. Lavender flashes and ink blots were forgotten as I watched a sparrow argue with a crow. It was easy to forget things at the moment as I stared at the sparrow and the crow, realizing they were after the same thing, some scrap I couldn't make out from the second story window. It seemed playful, almost cartoonish as the little puff of feathers tried to imitate the larger crow. The crow tore the sparrow to shreds for its insolence, and then the rest of the murderer crows came down to feast on the scraps. 
I felt sick. It all happened so quickly. It all happened so quickly, but then it was done. I shook myself from my stupor, frightened at the fury of nature, and made my way downstairs to the garage. I'd bought a bicycle specifically for bringing along on the move. The town is small and has plenty of sidewalks and not much traffic, so it seemed healthier. Maybe one of those mythical Midwest girls would appreciate my smaller carbon footprint, or at least my toned calf muscles. I was never all that picky. Not that it mattered. Not that anything matters. Humans have this big misconception there's something other than an accident. I firmly believed we had meaning, simply due to our place of dominance on the planet. I just didn't think it was so low on the food chain. Not sparrow versus crow low, but far from the top. It was a beautiful day. Seventy-something. Sunny. Felt good to pump the pedals and feel the wind blow across my face. The bookstore was downtown, by the park and the coffee shop. Though the park is barely anything but an open lot, one block of grass with a few trees, a fountain, and with a rock with a brass plate on it to commemorate Lincoln and Douglas debating years and years ago. It was noon and still relatively quiet. The standard lunch rush crowd headed to the fast food joints and a few people lazily enjoying the day. I took an extra lap around the heart of town, the old court building, an inordinate number of bars and churches, and really not much else. I like it. Liked it. You could feel time stretch a little as the hustle and bustle of the big city fell to the wayside. I had the bookstore to myself, except for the cashier that doubled as co-owner. Good to see you again, Luke. How can we help you today? She asked pleasantly. I could not remember her name to save my life, though she had been a fixture since my teenage years. Would it have saved my life, the one so near its end? Would that errant butterfly flapping its wings in Nepal send a wave through the cosmos that would negate what was to come if I could have simply remembered her name? No. Looking for a book on birds, ma'am, I replied cordially, my southern manners kicking in. She giggled. I told myself it was at the ma'am and not the accent. <laughs> Local or general? Local, if you don't mind. She giggled again and I felt my face flush. She laughed at me the way I laughed at someone from the sticks. I just got this one in. And, lucky for you, I ordered two copies. Plan on taking a copy out to Starved Rock this weekend. I took the copy and looked at the spine. Ornithological Wonders of the Illinois Valley by L. Gabehart. I thumbed through and was immediately stricken by the watercolors inside. I will take it. Anything else? The whole settling into small town life was a big change for me. I was used to a certain pace that was non-existent here. As much as riding my bike and hiking the trails was fun... I needed some kind of mental stimulant. What do you recommend? I tend to read strange Eastern European absurdists. Hmm, Kafka, Carms? She asked. Yes, 
Kirchanovsky as well. I answered happily. She was my kind of person. You ever read Stanislaw Lem? Absurd and hilarious, the Chichi trilogy might do the trick. She said as she looked about the store. I smiled and nodded. That sounds great. Any good horror? She brightened up at that question. Yes, a local author. He did the exact opposite of you, as a matter of fact. I want to say he lives in Grand Prairie now, says it's the home of Sandy Cheeks from Spongebob. I nodded and let out a little laugh. And Selena Gomez from Disney. I know Grand Prairie well. I think we still have an autographed copy or two up front. Amethyst Light by G. Dreary. She said, turning to look behind the counter. I felt my blood turn cold. Did you say Amethyst? Indeed. His favorite color. He said it here in town. Half the girls in town claim to be the basis for the love interest. She said, not hearing the panic in my voice. A coincidence. Nothing more. I could see the lavender... No, amethyst lights clearly, along with the black ooze as it attacked that man. I'll take it. Thank you kindly, I decided. I barely heard her giggle over the thunder of my pulse in my head. How odd. A book named after a delusion written by an author that fled to where I had moved from. These thoughts tore at my mind as I absently paid for the books and began peddling back towards home. I could not shake a strange foreboding as it seemed to well up with every rotation of the panels. Beep! I squeezed the brake and nearly fell over the handlebars. I looked around in confusion and saw I had run a red light. I turned to apologize to the driver, and my heart climbed into my throat. It was my heavy-set neighbor in his blue sedan. I scooted back off the street and onto the sidewalk and tried to look less scared to death and somewhat apologetic. He nodded at me as he passed, strangely expressionless. He continued to stare, turning his head, and I swear I saw a lavender flash across his dead brown eyes. It was early yet but the shadows seemed to grow long as terror gripped tight to my soul. The day that had felt so perfect now carried a chill that swept down my spine, frozen lightning that danced down the microbeats of sweat on my back and set my teeth to chatter. I crossed the little bridge that led to the high school and my new home. The waters of the Fox River seemed to churn hungrily in gray shades of avarice, and I saw an old man on a boat rocking as he held a rod. He looked up and waved at me, and I waved back with a smile that eased the panic for a second. Not everyone had an ink blot absorbed into their body. Yet. Not that I was aware of, at least. Hey! A voice called out. I turned and looked at the gravel parking lot across from the high school where a guy stood next to a Camaro that had seen its better days. I slowed down and looked at him in confused wonder. He had the most magnificent mullet I had ever seen. It was dark brown, nearly black, with scraggly white hairs that defied physics, parted in the center and nearly professional on top, 
but over his collar splashed the Kentucky waterfall of every early 90s action hero. Yeah, you! Blue crap! He yelled. I stopped enjoying the mullet as I hit the brakes. Instant, nearly overwhelming anxiety burst through me. My pupils became pinpoints, and a sheen of icy sweat blossomed over my skin. I apologize, but we don't know each other far as I reckon. We do not. I got an alert that someone bought a copy of my book. I called the book mouse and Brenda said it was you. He answered. And you googled me? Found my address and casually waited here for me to pass by? That's kind of fucking creepy, Mr. Gabehart. I heard myself say without thinking. Uh, when you put it that way, I guess it is. But I can't say it isn't accurate. <laughs> it's Lynn, by the way. Uh, Mr. Gabehart is my dad. Mr. Gabehart said. Speaks unwell of Brenda at the Bookmouse as well. Now, I will do my best to excuse this as small-town Americana, but I don't believe this should be in the brochure for Midwestern life. How can I help you, Mr. Gabehart? I asked. Please, it's Lynn. I apologize, but that is the first copy of my book to be sold. I got a little excited and a lot creepy. Lynn admitted, his cheeks flared a bright red. A lot fucking creepy. Congratulations, what I thumbed through was lovely. He smiled so big that his salt and pepper goatee turned into a pickle shape. I decided he was Lynn. Then I saw the pen he had in his hand. Now, I don't have a pen, but it would be an honor to get this thing signed. <laughs> I have a pen, he proclaimed. No shit. Well then, if you'd do me the honor. I paddled into the parking lot and pulled out the books from my backpack and handed him the ornithological wonders of Illinois Valley. It's funny to think it took reaching the end to find a new best friend, or that he would be stuck in 1988. It's hard to go back the scant weeks when my main image of him is now of him lying in a swill of black as purple lights flash in the air around him. No. Later. He handed me the book back, and it said in an almost illegible scratch, To Luke, I only stalk birds. Mostly. Sorry. Thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that. And congratulations on getting a book out there. Must be difficult. I said, unsure of what to say. Lynn laughed. <laughs> I get high in paint birds. It took longer to remember my Amazon password than it did to submit. It's a crazy world. So, you like amethyst lights? What? The book. I used to party with gear back in the day. Used to get shitty and sing karaoke. He helped me to figure out publishing. He paused and looked at me, slightly ashamed. Uh, Brenda told me you bought it. I don't know if there's such a thing as fate or predestination, but I suddenly wondered at the likelihood of it all. The sheer coincidence of seeing what I had seen, to find in the book, to meet in Lynn, who just happened to know the author of the book. If this were a horror movie or book, 
I would yell at the screen for the hero to leave town immediately. But I'm not that smart. Or hindsight is 2020. Or rose-colored? I don't know. I'm not a writer. And if I were, I would have come up with a better story than this. There would be breasts, and not the ones peeking at me from Lynn's flame-bedazzled bowling shirt, but beautiful breasts, teardrop-shaped with mid-sized hard nipples begging for my fingers or lips. I wonder if this is normal, this whole staring down at the end of my life as my head is suddenly filled with dancing breasts. You saw something, didn't you? Lynn asked as I stared in alarm. You feel like getting high and talking about it? I asked back. Lynn smiled and nodded happily. I do indeed. I have my own strain. It's called cuckoo. High indica. Higher THC. I didn't know what any of that meant, so I nodded knowingly. You want to follow me? You already know my address, don't you? He looked sheepish and shrugged. Just so you know, I think that as the writer, and I could be totally wrong here, so please correct me if so, but as the writer, you should have stalkers, not be one. I'm new to this. <laughs> Give me 30 minutes. I need to grab some things. He muttered and got into his car. I always assumed if I had someone stalk me, they'd at least have the decency to be attractive, I yelled as I pedaled off. I get that a lot, he yelled. I rode home with a smile. Once home, I found myself gravitate back to the upstairs window. I rolled the computer chair out into the hall and sat in the sunlight, and began thumbing through Lynn's book as the birds fluttered among the branches outside. A happy little sparrow painting caught my attention, and I remembered the way the crow tore the one apart earlier and felt a chill pass through me. The sparrow has a hallowed place in history. The Egyptians believed the sparrow retrieved the soul and took it to the duat. The English believed it to signify the death of a loved one or of the person it made eye contact with. A tapping sound caught my attention, and I looked outside curiously. The book fell from my hand as I saw a row of sparrows on the power line. Each one was staring right into the window at me. They didn't move except for swaying on the thick cable in the wind. They rose and fell, but their heads stayed trained at the window. I don't know how long we sat staring at each other. Luke, you home? Ling called from downstairs, startling me from my blank terror. When I jerked my head back, the sparrows took off en masse, and I slid the chair back in fright. They came swooping towards the window, and I watched them hit the glass with tiny cracks as their necks snapped and they fell to the ground below. Holy fuck! Lynn shouted as he topped the stairs. I was so afraid I spun around and threw a solid left at him. I don't know what happened next, not exactly. I spun, screamed, and struck. Then I hit the floor with a slam that took my breath away and screamed again as my arm bent unnaturally behind me. The pain quickly abated, and I just lay there with my face against the musty carpet. 
Sorry, second-degree black belt. Instinct took over. He muttered as I moaned painfully. Here, try this. I smelled a potent haze of skunky pine and rolled over with a groan. He stood smiling and passed me a perfectly rolled conical joint with a line of blue smoke wafting lazily. Thank you, I think. What the fuck was going on with the sparrows? He asked, looking out the window at what I was sure was a disgusting pile of dead birds. I let the smoke fill my lungs as I lay staring at the ceiling, thinking about them slamming into the glass pane of the window. I don't rightly have a clue. Fucking terrifying is what it was. This whole fucking place is terrifying. I was shocked to feel tears welling up. Lynn took the joint and nodded as he inhaled deeply. He blew a huge cloud out and passed it back. I imagine being so far from home is scary. Especially coming from an actual city to a podunk like this. I laughed at the word podunk. It was really an almost perfect description. I spent a couple weeks a year here my entire life. This is my grandmother's house. No, it isn't homesick. It's... Fuck, I don't know how to say it. It has been weird as hell the last 24 hours or so. How so? <clears throat> he asked, exhaling a fog. I told him about the sparrow and the crow, which he found fascinating, but I found myself stopping short of mentioning the purple light in the neighbor. He seemed to sense my apprehension and politely changed the subject. Uh, I brought something else for us, my way of apologizing for being a stalker. And nearly breaking my arm, I muttered, rubbing my elbow. He laughed. <laughs> if I wanted to break your arm, you would get my second autograph on the cast. We both laughed, but the unspoken acknowledgement that it was the truth passed as well. He helped me up and we went back downstairs to where a large brown paper bag sat on the table. I grabbed the top, which was folded over and stapled, and pulled excitedly. The weed was strong enough that the horror of the sparrows was forgotten in the mouth-watering smell emanating from the bag. Inside were four eight-inch foil-wrapped somethings, which I set on the table. Italian beef, hot, sweet, and wet. There's only one thing better in the entire Illinois Valley than this, Lynn said knowingly. Sam's Pizza, I answered. He looked surprised and smiled. I see you've been schooled already. Have you had this yet? I shook my head and his smile grew. I handed him one of the warm foil treats and we sat down. Dang, that really is some good smoke. What did you call it? Cuckoo. Glad you like it. I brought a couple of strains for you to try out. He nodded at the food, and we tore off the foil and stared at the wonders in front of us. It was a toasted roll, split down the center and stuffed with thinly sliced meat. An assortment of peppers sat nestled in the meat, greens and reds and oranges, like an autumn scene. Hot shot and noir, sweet peppers and dipped in all jus. 
hot, sweet, and wet. Reminds me of a couple of girls I used to know. It is like an angel came in my mouth, was all I could think to say. What the fuck was up with them sparrows? He asked as brown liquid ran down his chin. And then the wonderful food in my mouth turned to ash. I don't know. A sparrow was partially the reason I bought your book. Everything's gotten strange since last night. What happened last night? He asked casually. I looked at him and debated telling the truth. I saw a purple light outside, then a pool of black that, I don't know, oozed, sort of. Into this heavy-set neighbor across the street, Lynn finished. How in the fuck did you know that? I asked, mouth hanging open and partially chewed meat sitting stupidly on my tongue. Where is Amethyst Lights? Lynn asked. I didn't quite care for the note of understated panic in his voice. Upstairs, why? He was up and running up the stairs as I asked. He was surprisingly nimble and practically leapt them. Um, Luke? He called. By the window, still in the bag, I yelled back. Was it the neighbor across the street with the blue Ford? He called down. Probably. I don't know, cars, I replied, trying to picture the symbol I'd seen in chrome on the trunk. He is staring at your house kind of creepily, he said, just loud enough to carry. I got up and walked to the window and peeked out behind the curtains. He was staring at the house, like before, absent of any emotion, standing on the strip of lawn between sidewalk and actual yard. I know I was out of view, standing in the shadows at the edge of the window, but he turned his head slightly and now stared right where I stood. I walked to the front door and flipped the deadbolt slowly. The pop, as it snapped into place, seemed like a gunshot in the pregnant silence. I heard Lynn come down the steps, and I walked back to the table. My hands were shaken, and I realized my entire body had been tensed up as my fight-or-flight instincts had been screaming. What the fuck was that? I asked, and I sat down in a slump. Lynn didn't answer at first. He just thumbed through the book. The lights were the same color as the flowers on the lilac bush when I was a child. A comforting shade that reminded me of sleep afternoons. I looked curiously to see my neighbor Frank exit his blue Ford. A mercurial pool of ebony glinted back the streetlights from the roof of the car. What the fuck? That's not funny, I croaked. He slid the book to me, and I read a description of what I had seen. I flipped a few pages and saw where the horn alerted me before I rode in front of the blue car. I don't understand. Can you call your friend? I need answers. Lynn already had his phone to his ear. I sat, looking at the book, wanting to flip ahead, but honestly scared to death at the notion. What I didn't like then, and only truly appreciate now 
as how close to the end of the book we were. I fought the urge to go forward and instead went back. It was a series of short stories that were connected by the theme of amethyst lights, it seemed, but also went in chronological order, the first taking place as Native Americans warred among each other. No answer. He does that. Just disappears for months. He's either writing, in love, or very high on something. Lynn said matter-of-factly. I tapped the cover of the book. So, you have read this? He nodded. To the end, I pushed. A more hesitant nod. But that would be fucking crazy to think the story was about me. A simple coincidence, right? I questioned, fearing the answer and marveling at the insanity of it all. Probably. He didn't seem convinced, though. Probably. He wrote me into the story as well, Lynn said with a shrug. Okay, I'm sure friends do that all the time. I looked warily at the book, as if it were a snake. He wouldn't look at me. He killed me. Funny, until it isn't, I imagine, I said dryly. Yeah, then it becomes decidedly less funny. He didn't look at me. I tapped the cover. Do I die as well? Lynn swiped the book from me. It's just a book, Luke. Not even a great one. That's a lie. It's actually pretty good. Why did he move to Texas? I asked, needing answers to the growing questions in my mind. Lynn pulled a baggie out of his cargo shorts pocket and stared intently before selecting a rather large joint and lighting it. I took it gratefully and watched him. We passed it back and forth in a silence that felt unbearably heavy. Then he spoke. Gear is strange, always has been. Diagnosed bipolar type 2. Crazy runs in his family. He just decided one day he was moving, no notice at all. One day he called and said he was leaving. The next day, he was gone. A crazy rider, one that kills his friends, then runs away to Texas out of nowhere, I mused. A lot of people have a hard time with him and he knows it. Locks himself away because it's just as big a burden on himself. But it isn't about what he is, it's about what he knows. He does everything on instinct, makes intuitive leaps. We used to joke that he could see the future. Lynn pushed the sandwich about, his hunger gone. My stomach lurched. I drank some water and found it sated the physical thirst, but wasn't quenching the existential one. You like whiskey? Lynn nodded and took a hit off the joint. Jack and Coke? I laughed. Whiskey and glass and grow some nuts. I got up and grabbed two tumblers and a bottle of Amber Heaven. It was like he could see the future. What does that mean? He just seemed to know things. Nothing surprised him, you know? But then he started writing stories. Good ones, mind you, but weird. 
he would email them to me, and sure enough, a week or so later, whatever strange thing he wrote happened. I watched as he stared off into space, remembering. I brought the glasses out and poured three fingers each. Why didn't he warn people? Lynn lifted the glass and took a dainty sip, his lip curled. I sadly slid a can of Coke to him. Thank God he did, but no one ever took him seriously. And he didn't see the future, he wrote it as stories, so he didn't know until after... until he wrote about Patrick. I sipped the whiskey and relished the burn. What did he write? Lynn poured the coke in, and part of me died in the exhalation of carbon dioxide bubbles. His death. Exactly how it eventually happened. He sent it to Patrick and me. Patrick got pissed off and didn't think it was funny. None of us did. He decided to move right after the funeral. Came to it pulling the trailer. He hasn't been back since. Then he sent me a copy of Amethyst with an apology. I forgot all about it until today. It came out three years ago. I was shitting the brick for a while, but then, you know, it just sort of went away. I figured I'd beat it, or whatever didn't work so far away. He held the glass absently. Do I die? I asked, after draining the cup and refilling it with shaken hands. No, you don't, but I do, he whispered. I didn't feel the type of relief you might imagine. Something in his tone didn't sound like surviving and being okay went necessarily hand in hand. They didn't, but he tried to spare me that much, at least. Poor bastard, he tried. It was at that moment I surrendered to the inevitable. I'm sure you think I'm a coward, maybe a fool. But when you are face to face with oblivion, the only options are teeth bared or calm acceptance. I was tired, had been for a long time. Ray Bradbury said that some people are just born sad. Try as I may to avoid it or prove it wrong, maybe I was one of those people. And the idea that this slow dirge was preordained, that I was a character in someone else's tale, that made a comforting sort of sense. How long do we have? I asked Lynn, who was lighting another joint. Not sure either of us really want to know that for sure. He passed me the joint, which I both desperately wanted and didn't need at all. I nodded. We moved to the living room and watched a bad 80s horror movie. Unsurprisingly, Lynn knew it line for line. We laughed at the bad acting, pretending to be distracted. I never once considered reading the end of the story. Maybe I should have, but what would that really do in the long run? I simply took the next proffered joint and decided ignorance was bliss. The next morning, the pile of dead sparrows was gone from the side of the house. A pair of muddy footprints led towards the street. 
It didn't take Sherlock Holmes's mastery of deduction to judge the angle that seemed to lead right to the neighbor's house across the street. I had gotten up, grabbed the trash bags, and prepared myself for twenty minutes of retching. Instead, I stood in the pre-dawn watching the quiet house. It was mad, but I sure felt as if the house was watching me back. I went back inside and sat at the window upstairs, sipping coffee and watching the birds as the sun rose. When I glanced across the street, following a blue jay, I saw the neighbor staring right at me. He stood motionless as the golden light seemed to dim around him. He raised his arm slowly and put something into his mouth and chewed. Even from however many hundred feet away, I could see his mouth gaping as he chewed. My eyes threatened to explode from my skull as I saw a feather fall slowly, drifting in front of his white shirt. He was eating the fucking sparrows. Had to be. I went to the bedroom and packed up a suitcase. I grabbed the important things I thought I would need for an extended retreat and went to the garage at nearly a sprint. The door raised as slowly as in a horror film when the monster is right behind you. I glanced over my shoulder and saw him still chewing and staring as I ducked under and hit the button on the fob to unlock the doors. I popped the trunk as the garage door finally rattled home. All four tires were flat. The flaccid rubber shredded around the rims. I walked slowly around the car and slammed my fist on the hood, which fucking hurt bad. I wanted to scream in rage and fear and pain, but when I looked up at the house across the street, it all froze in my throat. He stared still with those expressionless dead eyes, but then... The corners of his mouth twitched into a parody of a smile. I just stared in horror as a warm trickle of piss ran down my leg. I stood in broad daylight, watching a man eat dead sparrows with an ever-growing wet spot on the front of my jeans. He just stared at me, still smiling and chewing on little hollow bones. I wondered if they crunched. I stood there in my piss-soaked pants and wondered if the little bones popped between his molars. I could practically hear them. With my bags in hand, I walked back inside, more defeated than I had ever been in my life. I took a shower and really let it settle over my shoulders. Lynn had taken the book. There was clearly some nefarious shit happening. I was stuck with four shredded tires. I could get them replaced, but that meant a tow, and half the day spent at the Firestone or whatever rural equivalent existed. What would the neighbor do if I was gone all day? I knew he slashed the tires, but there was no proof. As the water dripped into the tub, I could hear the little bones crunch, see his dead eyes as they stared at me probably right at the bathroom through the walls and half a story. Then I heard a noise downstairs. Part of me just wanted to sit down and let the water pound my skull as death climbed the stairs to take me. Just give up, 
completely. But there was enough will buried deep down I didn't expect. I crept out of the shower, trying to not rattle the curtain as the rings slowly slid down the metal bar. It seemed too loud, carrying over the water, spraying against the bottom of the tub. I wrapped a towel around my waist, testicles fully retreated into my abdomen, and inched towards the door as I listened carefully. I looked around, frantic, seeking a weapon or anything to defend myself. A creak outside brought the dead face back, the crunching of little birds, feathers stuck to the drool as it ran down the slack jaw. I grabbed the toilet plunger. The handle was pretty stout, solid wood, and likely to do nothing to whatever he had become since absorbing the inky goo. The handle on the bathroom door slowly began to turn, and I stepped to the side. It opened, and I swung for all I was worth, which apparently isn't much. The red rubber end hit first with a hollow, concave thump and sprang back unexpectedly. I was in a moment of intense, fear-engaged idiocy. I tried again, and nothing changed. As I tensed up for a third strike, a hand flashed and broke the wooden handle, and the plunger head went flying. Fucking stop! That's gross! And you hit me right in the fucking mouth! Lynn yelled. Why the fuck are you sneaking into my house? Especially the fucking bathroom! I countered. I came by to help you clean up the birds. Then I saw your tires and worried something happened to you. <laughs> I could feel my heartbeat six inches from my chest. You read the fucking story. You should have known what was happening. <laughs> Turns out the story wasn't finished. Or at least the ending wasn't exactly right. I talked to Gear this morning. <laughs> he says hello and sorry. Lynn said, wiping at his mouth disgustedly. I barged past Lynn, mildly grateful to have not pissed the towel. Great. The neighbor ate the sparrows while making eye contact with me. He slashed the tires, I know it. I pissed my pants, by the way. That's why I was in the shower. I pissed myself as he smiled and popped dead sparrows in his mouth. Never looked away. Not once. I was at the window staring at his house, but his car was gone. I felt a momentary relief and hated myself for it. Want to go somewhere? Chicago? We can catch a show, get drunk on North Clark. Sure, whatever. My calendar is wide open. He ate the sparrows? You sure? Lynn asked. I nodded, still staring across the street. I saw the feathers. His eyes are dead. Dead. My mind caught up from the terror in a flash, and my eyes widened. What did Gear say, exactly? Get dressed, and I'll meet you downstairs and fill you in. I don't like a thin towel between your dick and me, especially knowing you have a sensitive bladder. Lynn left, and I heard him go down the stairs. You watch someone eat dead birds and smile at you and see if you piss your pants. I went into the bedroom and closed the door. And you should be so fortunate to be so close to my wonderful penis. 
I can safely say I wouldn't, and I was most certainly not lucky. <laughs> he yelled and laughed. I could feel something breaking inside my head. My sanity, maybe. I don't know for sure, but I know something was on the verge of collapse. Hot tears formed, and I knew if I let them go, they wouldn't stop. Once, back in Texas, I watched my buddy get a tattoo on his ribs. Anywhere directly on the bone sucks, but the ribs are among the worst, and he was hurting. Unfortunately, he had us with him watching his every flinch. I swear he had a tear form and, through will alone, sucked it back into his tear duct. I found the resolve to do the same. Lynn was rolling a joint mindlessly and humming to himself. I grabbed a glass of water and joined him at the table. There was something hypnotic in the way he broke it up and then filled the folded paper. I'd never been able to quite master that art. He looked at me and smiled before pulling a small jar from his pocket. He dribbled something that looked like honey onto the green leaves and then rolled it up and passed it to me. What was that? I asked as I picked it up and grabbed the lighter. It didn't matter as I inhaled. Go juice. Was all he said as he took it and inhaled deeply. What did Gear say? I said around a cloud of across smoke. He said he never really saw an end to the last tale, so he made one up. He is as clueless as we are. Lynn said through gritted teeth. Sheer will kept him from coughing. And you believed him? I asked seriously. Lynn stared at the ceiling fan wobbling above us and sighed. What reason did he have to lie? He never did before. If he has a problem, it's being too honest. It's off-putting, you know? I nodded, uncertainly. I don't think he was being 100% honest. I did then because it felt nicer than the truth that screamed in the corner that I tried to stick it into. But now, as the end draws near... I think he changed the story because what really happened was worse than his version. I don't know, not for certain, but something about how it played out with this brief moment of hope told me he was sparing his friend. Sort of. As much as he could, anyway. But nothing plays out like you think it will. There's always a twist and a turn. You don't realize it until it's too late. Or... At least that was my case. We sat and talked, and soon neither of us was in any condition to go to Chicago. Instead, we went to the park. Why in the fuck would I want to go to the park? I asked, not comprehending the words in any way that made sense. First, we didn't end the story. That means if we do, then it really doesn't mean anything. Second, it's beautiful and peaceful. Frankly, you've been through some shit. And maybe it'll help center you. Lynn explained with a stoned rationality that seemed impossible to deny. I couldn't argue, though I petulantly wanted to. Fine. And it was. Beautiful, actually. It became our thing, as neither of us really had much of a life. 
Matheson, Starved Rock, and Buffalo Rock made up a triumvirate of parks in the area, and we spent the next week exploring the many trails and watching the birds. He took me to little towns, and we feasted on local fare like tenderloins the size of hubcaps and greasy burgers at dive bars. Even the creepy-ass neighbor ceased being as overtly creepy. Mostly. I would still catch him staring at me while I stared at him from the upstairs window. The police came by about my tires and said there had been a rash of vandalizing across town, and at least fifteen cars with tires slashed. They blamed it on the kids, which, when I remembered my own idiocy as a teen, seemed sort of likely. It wasn't. But who the hell believes in black ooze and lavender-colored lights? After a couple days passed, I began to question the details. It was across the street when I thought I saw him munching dead birds, and the ooze and lights never flashed or showed up again. That goddamned rider and his lies lulled me into a false sense of safety. Not that I was aware, not then, but now I see the reprieve was a fool's gambit. But we had so much fun. Maybe the ending isn't as important as the journey. That reeks of bullshit, though. We can skip most of me making googly eyes at the monster across the street and getting stoned with Lynn while watching terrible movies. We can skip that stuff because it's hard to get those frozen moments back into focus as panic has my balls fully in my abdomen. I'm not sure how much time is left to me at all. And as much fun as this stroll down memory lane has been, its ending is drawing to a close. It went to shit two days ago. I was at the upstairs window where I now had a canvas and easel set up as I sloppily tried to paint the birds. I was debating finger painting over whatever the hell my disconnect from brain to talent was vomiting into the world. The sky was crystal clear, and then it wasn't, that quickly. It was morning, and then it was night. I frowned in confusion. In Texas, when the sky does theatrics like this, it means hail and possibly a tornado. Everything stopped, and a sudden pressure filled my skull like when a plane's landing. I turned and ran towards the stairs, not sure which direction was safest, but anything lower seemed best. There was a sound, one I cannot describe as it's not one I've ever contemplated before. I imagine it's similar to the sound a torpedo hitting a submarine sounds like to the poor fish in the immediate vicinity. An absence so profound and low-toned, like the bass line from a sleep song, but impossibly heavier. The distorted reality around it in such a way that every window facing the street exploded inward. I fell down the stairs, lifted off my feet by the impact of God's fist onto the land, and cracked my head on the floor with a thud that rattled my brains against my skull. I pushed myself to my knees, admiring the crimson that was forming a pool on the beige threadbare carpet. I staggered over, crunching broken glass that cut through my socks and into my feet, but it felt like something happening to someone else, so I just kept moving to the door. It was still dark outside. Artificial evening at ten in the morning, like winter at the top of the world. 
It didn't make sense as I tried to focus, but all I could see were spots of distortion in the air around me. I fell to my ass on the sidewalk as the pain in my shoulder and back from falling down the stairs roared to compete with the ocean in my mind of turbulent waves. I blinked away the spots and looked up at a sky of roiling black clouds and flickering lavender lights like a swarm of fireflies everywhere around me. And then I noticed my neighbors, all of them on both sides of the street, stood staring at me with empty expressions that added a layer of permafrost to the lava inside my battered skull. They didn't seem to breathe. They just stood unmoving with their eyes transfixed on me as I tried to stand on my bleeding feet. The flickering amethyst seemed to avoid the eerie-as-fuck neighbors, and I hobbled around the side of the house. I patted my pocket, and of course I didn't have my keys. I didn't expect a concussive force to launch me down the stairs, or a hail of ominous purple and a gang of zombified monsters in human flesh either. It had become a day of firsts, and continued to get worse. The tree I watched from the upstairs window was now laying through my garage and on top of the car. I wondered if I hit the fob, would the mess underneath let out the same piteous wail that threatened to escape my chest, the same note of sustained panic that seemed to reverberate through my every cell. I threw my head back and screamed inchoately to the empty heavens above. It was a rasping, tearing, primal thing that hurt and summated the mess of emotions in my head. And then the neighbors followed suit. But where mine was the pained sound of a frightened animal, theirs was something completely alien. It didn't seem possible that a human throat could make that sustained sound, and the longer it went, the more it frayed at the edges of my sanity. I felt something drip onto my lip, rubbed absently, and stared at blood, black beneath the purple flashes and heavy black clouds. On wobbly legs, I staggered into the kitchen door, the chorus of the damned still singing in the too thick air as blood streamed into my mouth from my nose. I grabbed the phone and tried to call Lynn as the floor raced up suddenly to greet my face. In the books I read, this was a sign of losing consciousness. In my reality, it ended with me hitting the floor like a sack of potatoes as the screaming continued to flood through the shattered windows of my living room. Time lost all meaning as I lay, jerking in a pool of various bodily fluids, my entire nervous system overloaded by the alien sound that filled the morning of night. The purple wisps darted around my body, close enough to send tingles of cold across my skin. I felt at the edge of suffocation as my chest could only expand so far between spasms and black light swam between the amethyst, fighting for control of my vision. Then, something broke through the horrific cacophony. It wasn't much better, but it was momentarily the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. I'm a cowboy, on this steel horse I ride. I gasped in huge lungfuls of air as the paralysis was broken by the 80th best music to crawl out of New Jersey blared outside. 
And I'm wanted, wanted, dead or alive. The strangling sound dissipated in the hair metal refrain and squawking guitars. I had never missed the sight of stonewashed denim as much as in that moment, as tears ran down my swollen cheeks and my entire body felt pricked by white-hot needles. What the fuck happened here? Lynn shouted from the side door. Oh, fuck Luke. Dude, you look like shit. Temporarily, you're stuck with that fucking face for life. I wheezed through tears and laughter as fear and madness warred in my mind. What happened? I sat up painfully and told him how the sky went black and then the explosion that shattered the windows. He listened as he packed a baggie with ice and handed it to me. Ball lightning, maybe. Or a localized tornado. Both are likely with the strange confluence of the rivers. You have any alcohol? I pointed vaguely at the cupboard. Scotch, whiskey, maybe vodka. Rub it. Uh, upstairs, above the sink. I saw the purple lights from outside. He shouted as he went up the stairs. I sat silently, not willing to shout and aggravate the agonies just under the surface. Tell me about the screams. I don't know more. It was fucking terrifying. They just stood there at first, and then the screams began. Do you have a gun? Why? Because I'm from Texas? Lynn shrugged. <laughs> yeah. I nodded. It's in the basement, in the safe. I looked at him as he used the pair of pliers from the medicine cabinet to pull pieces of glass from the bottom of my left foot. How did you know to come over? You called, but then I heard nothing but static. I was already headed this way. He poured the alcohol over my torn-up soul, and I choked down a scream. The gun is until we get the windows covered. You seem as if you'll be next to worthless on that front. Your entire body will be a bruise soon. He wasn't lying. I could feel things seizing up from sitting on the floor. These storms happen often? No. The last time I can think of is the weekend gear moved. The night before the funeral. He pulled the final sliver out and began wrapping gauze around my foot. Did you even consider leaving as well? Exploring the world and sketching new birds? I asked, a sea of bewildered calm in an ocean of chaos. My mom and dad are here. Everyone except for a small handful of people I've ever known live right here. No reason to leave. Lynn inspected my right foot, but it seemed to have fared better, and he just poured alcohol and wrapped it. Mostly scratches. Not even one gear killed you in the story. I insisted. Lynn looked at me funny. He never saw an ending, remember? But you didn't know that at the time. I guess not. He finished, got up, and grabbed the bottle of whiskey from the cupboard. I pushed myself up against my body's protestations. I will take a double. He laughed. <laughs> you likely have a concussion, and we need to call the cops and report this. It's still early. 
and just to dull the pain. He reached into his shirt pocket and passed me a joint. Use this instead. How did you die in the story? I asked as I grabbed my lighter. I don't remember. Liar. You said it freaked you out. Years ago. I've smoked a few of those since then. Where is the book? I asked as I watched him pour a tall glass of whiskey. In the car. He sat and took the joint and inhaled deeply. Well, what's the combo for the safe? I'll go down and grab the gun for you, so you don't have to attempt the stairs. One, 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 eight, then turn it to the left. Grab a box of bullets, too, if you please, I said as I pushed myself up. Where are you going? He asked, concerned. To piss. Watch the bottom steps, they're loose. I tested putting weight on my feet, and it hurt but no worse than my back and head. He looked at me cautiously and then got up and went to the basement door. As soon as he headed down the steps, I hurried out to the car and grabbed the book from the glove compartment, stuck it down my pants, and went back to sit at the table. Overcompensate much? Lynn asked as he came back up carrying my forty-five. Shit is bigger in Texas, and that includes varmints was all I could think to say. I'm going to run and get my plywood. You going to be okay? He stared at me and I just nodded. Don't sleep or drink. I'll be back in half an hour or so. I smiled and began loading a magazine with brass. He just stared and shook his head. Big varmints. As soon as Bon Jovi began blaring, I pulled out the book and began reading. It was odd, reading about our trips to the various parks, and I felt my stoned and battered brain trying to tell me something, but I couldn't suss out what it was exactly. Then I got to this morning. My jaw dropped as I read about the ball lightning that burst in front of my house, and the alien cries of the neighbors. If I hadn't just lived it, I would have been filled with disbelief. Then I got to Lynn leaving for the store and my sitting at the table reading about the day's events. Luke turned around to see Lynn staring at him from the kitchen door with regret, the amethyst lights swirling around his head. I felt a ball of ice in the back of my throat as I turned slowly to see exactly that. Go. Don't stop because of me, Lynn said. Luke knew then that whatever the black ooze was, it had gotten to Lynn as well. The purple lights filled the kitchen as Luke lifted the gun and aimed it at his friend. When? I asked softly. We took him this morning when we were coming to take you, but the pesky storm came. His voice sounded normal, if flat. What are you? We are the future. Your future. He smiled, but it never reached his eyes and came towards me. I fired once, hitting him between the eyes and snapping his body backwards to smash against the stove. He pushed himself up and stared at me as black poured from the crater in his forehead. 
I fired two more times, both in the chest. The ooze gushed out of the wounds and pooled on the floor. I watched in horror as it began to undulate and move towards me. I grabbed the book and the smoldering joint and ran awkwardly up the stairs. The howls of the neighbors outside seemed lessened upstairs, and I made my way to the window and looked out to see the neighbors staring up at me. The purple lights came up the stairs and floated in the air around me, a spotlight for the dead eyes to focus on. I could hear the puddles sloshing ever nearer and pulled open the book. Luke took refuge in his room and began to recite the events that led up to this moment. The ooze grew ever closer, and he knew there was nothing to be done. Defeat weighed heavily upon my aching shoulders as I realized hope was gone at that moment. Lynn had known the entire time how it would all play out, never said a word. Maybe he knew there was no escape in fate. I don't know, and never will. He is dead, and I can hear the ooze outside the door. According to the book, there's only one thing left for me to do. To all my loved ones and former friends, I guess this is goodbye. There isn't a way out of this. Fuck. Beware the purple lights and that fucking gear. I'm sorry for anything I ever did and hope you remember me fondly. Goodbye. As the door began to buckle inward... Luke grabbed the gun and placed the barrel in his mouth. With a middle finger extended to the black shape pouring through the cracks, the loud retort of the gun joined the chorus of the damned outside. You've been listening to I Saw It From The Upstairs Window by M. Ennenbach. M. Ennenbach is a poet, a scribbler of tales, a father, a fermenter, and a proud naturalized Texan from Illinois. You can find more about him on his website, mennenbach.com. Well, listeners, that's all we have for this evening. I'd like to thank Drew Blood and Olivia Steele again for their contributions to tonight's story. If you didn't already know... Drew hosts his own show titled Drew Blood's Dark Tales, available through the podcast platform of your choice, as well as on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. Now, I promised a little update for you all, didn't I? Back in episode 4 of season 8, I mentioned that we had managed to secure a story that was a bit different than the usual tales that we feature. Well, I am beyond excited to tell you that, closing out Season 8 of Horror Hill, we will be featuring full coverage of The Events at Porth Farm by Ted Klein. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the story, it was first published in the early 70s and is considered to be a modern classic in the horror and weird fiction genres. This is also the first time that this story has been licensed for official narration. Now, I know that in my role as host of Horror Hill, 
I tend to lean into the performance aspect of my job, making sure to hype up the stories for the benefit of the audience and writers alike. Many of you are familiar with my Horror Hill persona, so let me change things up and do something truly terrifying. I'm going to step out of that character role for a moment to become myself. This is just me here, plain old Eric Peabody, who's been a horror fan for almost 35 years. The events at Porth Farm is a story that has truly chilled me every time that I've read it. It's nuanced and intelligent and deeply frightening, and I can't wait to share it with you all. We'll be airing that in July, so there's plenty of time for other tales in the meantime. Thanks for sticking around for this special announcement, and until next time, stay spooky. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username VikingGuitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. In particular, if you're looking for someone to provide voice work for your own project, or are in need of audio production of any sort, it would be wonderful to chat. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. 
Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you.